Okay, good morning everyone. Hope everybody's uh, staying warm in our frigid 60-something degree weather. This is not, I was just in New York for a wedding Sunday night. I'm going back tomorrow for another wedding. That's cold. This is not cold. Okay, as usual, our overview of the parsha, Chayisara, and then we'll delve into our specific psukim. Our parsha begins where last week parsha leaves off. Avram returns from the Akedah and he discovers that his beloved wife, his life partner, Sarah, has expired. She's died. What's her cause of death? What does it say on the death certificate? She was scared to death. We use that expression. Someone's scared to death. She literally was scared to death. I mention this every year. That we learn from here the proper way that we're supposed to inform somebody. You don't call and say... You know, God told me to take your son, your only son, the one you did so long, and I, I took a knife and I held it over his throat, and, I, and then she died. He never got to the punchline. The, the angel said, stop. Instead, if you have a Jewish mother, this is a very, very important lesson. Instead, Chazal learned from here that when you have to tell someone something, you call and you say, I want you to know your grandchild's fine. They're fine, everything's okay, they're perfect, they're fine. But listen to this crazy thing, the leg got caught in the playground and it broke and we had to go to the hospital, but they're fine. You got to start off with, they're fine, and then you can go back and tell the story. You can't tell the story and build drama and suspense, because Sari Imenu never lived for the punchline. She never heard that Yitzchak was okay, that the angel said, stop. So the, the uh, cause of death on her death certificate, Sarah was scared to death. This is the section we're going to study in depth. We'll come back and look at it in a moment. So Avram now has to find a burial place for his wife. He negotiates the plot of land many of us have visited. Marasamachpela in Hebron. Please God, we should visit for many more years. And, uh, and Avram buries his wife Sarah there. And immediately afterwards it describes Avram is now an empty nester. Avram is a senior member of the community. Vashem berachas Avram bakol. And Hashem had blessed Avram with everything. And Rashi says, what does it mean, bakol? Bakol ola begamatria ben. ben, isho. Bakol in gamatria, numerical value is the same as ben. Avram remembers he's blessed with everything. He has a son. And he now needs to find a wife for that son. The Medrash tells us Bakol means, in fact, a daughter. That Avram had a daughter, but Bakol is kind of funny. His wife dies. He's in profound sense of mourning and grief. His life partner, after which he's never the same. And what's the epiphany? What's the realization after burying his wife? Oh boy, I have everything. You have everything. You just lost everything. How do you think Sari Imenu feels listening from Shemayim? As Avram feels, oh, she's gone? Now I have everything. What do you mean, now you have everything? Now you've lost everything. What does this mean, Bakol? And we're not going to elaborate now. We've discussed it in the past. Bakol, Mikokol, we say it in benching. With Avram, we have Bakol. With Yitzchak, we have Mikol. With Yaakov, we have Bakol. At the end of our parsha, when Avram successfully finds a wife for Yitzchak, it says that Avram gave Yitzchak Kol Asher Lo, which we're to mean, which we are to understand, Kol Asher Lo is not that Avram bequeathed to Yitzchak everything he had. He had a number of real estate holdings and he had a stock market portfolio and he had a wonderful bookcase of Svarim and he gave him his gold watch and his cufflinks. No, Bakol Asher Lo means he bequeathed to Yitzchak the sense of coal. This coal that Hashem blessed Avram Bakol, he gave Yitzchak coal Asher Lo. That coal. What is this magical coal that Avram felt blessed by even after the loss of his wife? that he gave to Yitzchak, and Yitzchak gave to Yaakov. And Yaakov put in every one of our DNA a sense of coal. What is this sense of coal? It's a good question. We're going to talk about it. It's only Tuesday, but I think we're going to talk about it Shabbos morning. Yo, I think I know what I'm going to talk about in my drusha already on Tuesday. So I have to leave you with some suspense. But Rashi is a hint. I'll tell you what I'm not going to say on Shabbos. Rashi is a hint. What's the bakol, the gematria ben? He realizes he needs a wife for a son. Which means to say that Avram chooses not to look to the past, but Avram chooses with the loss of his wife to look to the future. And he says, I have a son. And if I have continuity, and if I have a legacy, and if I will have progeny, then I have everything. Because you know what? Kachi darko shalolam. This is the way of the world that people die. 
So my beloved life partner, my beloved wife Sarah is gone. A piece of me is gone. I will never be the same. But that's the way of the world. What matters most is I'm leaving a legacy to the world. I'm leaving the world different than the way I found it. I have a son through whom I will leave a value system to the world. And that's the continuity, perhaps, that's what Rashi is saying, is immediately after burying his wife, Vayakam Hasad of Amar Avram he purchases it, he buries his wife, and Vayakam Meso, he gets up, he chooses not to wallow in his grief, and he says, I can be stuck in the past and a sense of loss, or I can be devoted to the future and finding my Yitzchak a wife. Because Bakol, if I have everything, I discovered God, I've revolutionized the world, I've converted thousands, I have a son to hand it off to, but what's the, what's the purpose of the bakol if he doesn't have a wife and won't have children of his own? If I won't have grand... This is the first Jewish grandfather, nervous he won't have grandchildren. I have the bakol, but my, my Yitzchak needs a wife. And that's the transition the juxtaposition from the loss of Sarah into Avram's recognition that even with her loss, God has blessed me with everything, a Yitzchak, I have to find him a wife so that we can create a future and leave a legacy. Eliezer serves on this mission. Eliezer is somewhat disappointed. He thought he was going to be the Mechutin with Avram. He heads out on this mission and he has these conditions. It has to be somebody who has chesed. And we've talked about in the past, you can listen on Y.U. Torah, the language what do we talk about the act of doing chesed? We talk about it as gemilas chasadim, a gomel chesed. Our chesed is not just regular chesed. What kind of chesed is it? Camel chesed, a gamal. You ever think about the connection between gemilas chasadim and gomel chesed? No, no, I'm good. Gomel chesed, gemilas chasadim, gomel chesed, gamal, Eliezer and Rivka. The test of whether in fact she's selfless and giving and caring, whether she intuits the quality that matters most, what's the test? With a gamal, with a camel. What is it about the camel that we can learn about chesed? And the camel was the mechanism of the symbol through which the test was carried out. We've talked about that in the past. But it's critically important. We live in the world of shiduchim and resumes. I have a whole theory. I have a, an article I've been writing in my head. I just don't know if I'll ever have the courage to actually print. Which is, what should really be on the shidduch resume? <laughs> Once you're married a few years, you realize, you know, what seminary she went to, what high school she went to, what she majored in, all that. Uh, okay, that's nice. What really matters about whether a marriage is compatible is... You know, what, what temperature does she want the thermostat set to? And can she, sleep, can she sleep with a little bit of a light on? Can I read in bed or not? And when she go out to eat, does she like milkshakes or flesheks? And does she like to get to the airport early or likes to be the last one? Does she like to get on the plane at first or be the last one to board? Those are the real things that should be on a shidduch resume. Because you live long enough, you see that marriages dissolve. It's not that, you know what, we're compatible and it's amazing and we work together and we have the same vision. She went to a different seminary than I wanted so we can't continue staying married. You know, marriages don't break off because of the things on the resume. So we need to redo the whole resume. But what was on Avram's resume? He sends Eliezer, he sends Eliezer, and he says, when you examine the resumes, here's the one thing I want you to look for. Not whether her mother wears a shaitel or covers her hair when she, you know, whether she wears a robe on Shabbos or Shabbos clothing, does the father what kind of yarmulke, none of that's on Avram's resume. When Avram looks, sends Eliezer, check out the resume, what's the one thing? Chesed. Kind. Is she kind? Is she kind? That's what I want to know. Is she kind? If she's selfish, if she is elite, if she is... Um, spoiled, if she is, then she's not for my son. The one thing I want to know, is she kind? And that's the test. She's not only kind for Eliezer, she's kind for his camels. Eliezer goes back, has to meet this lovan. They begin the negotiation process, and Yitzchak and Rivka marry. Yitzchak uh, comes, and from here we learn about the tefillah of Mincha. Yitzchak goes out, to daven in the field. Sicha is a lashon tefillah. 
Sharon Betfilo, which we study on Wednesday mornings, could listen to online as well, Rav Pinkus develops the 13 synonyms for prayer. One of them is Sicha. We have 13 different terms in Tanakh, all describing prayer. And we don't have real synonyms in Judaism and in, in biblical Hebrew. There must be at least a subtle difference between them. It's teaching us something new. So Sicha is different than the other languages. Tzaka, Zaka, Pila, Rina, and so on. What's Sicha? If you're in Israel and someone wants to have a sicha, what do they want to have with you? It's a conversation. Sicha is a conversation. It's a casual conversation. It's it's an intimate conversation. It's confiding in a friend. So there are prayers out of desperation. There are prayers of joy. There are prayers from a distance. And there's sicha, which is prayer from a sense of closeness. Rebbe points out, when it comes to Avram, it says, Vayashkim Avram Baboker, Vayamot Avram stands. His posture is erect while he's talking to God. Whereas Yitzchak, the Lushan of Sicha, is more bent over. That the poor person pours out. Before God, they pour their Sicha. Why the difference? Why is Avram's posture standing tall, upright, erect? Whereas Yitzchak is described as somewhat hunched over and bent over. Beselovitchik describes, for whom was Avram davening? Daven for stone. Then he davens for his son, Yitzchak. When you're davening for someone else with a sense of protest and objection, then you stand up straight. But when you're davening for yourself, Yitzchak is davening for himself, there's humility. The person is humble. And that's the difference. Avram last week taught us about lobbying and advocacy. We mentioned it last week. He protests Stone. He gave us license. He is the precedent for our right to protest when we think there's injustice. He's davening for others. Whereas Yitzchak is davening for himself. It's a sense of sicha. Yitzchak introduces us to the tefillah of Mincha. Avram, the Gemara Brachos, and the Avav as a machlokas. Whether our prayers correspond with the korbanos, do our prayers correspond with the avos, avos tiknum? The answer is probably some integration of both. But we see Avram introduced the uh, shacharis and Yitzchak Mincha. Of the three prayers we say a day, which is the most potent? Which is the most beloved by the Almighty? Which does he welcome? Which pierces the heavens? Mincha. The Gemara says in Brachos, that, uh, I'm sorry, Vav is this Gemara, Chav Gimel is the avos tiknum. The Gemara says in Brachos that Tfilas Mincha Eliyahu Anavi only was answered because he appealed to God Baha'alos Mincha at Mincha time. The Navi says. Why is Mincha so precious? It's the shortest of them all. Shacharis is long, it's introduced with Psuke de Zimra and the Amida and all the Ashri of Alatzion. Shacharis is the longest. And Marav also has Kriyashma and Birchos Kriyashma. Mincha is essentially the Amida. Okay, we buffer it, you throw it in an Ashrei and an Aleinu. Mincha is Amida. So why is it the most precious to Hashem? Why is it the most beloved? So the popular explanation of Gansfried, the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch and others say, because Shachris you say, the beginning of the day. You wake up with a sense of enthusiasm and zeal, you greet the day with optimism and hope of what the day will bring. You've not yet begun your day, so you can schedule the first thing you do, I daven Shachris. Marev, it's the end of the day. Day has wound down, you're reflective on the day, you're appreciative of the day, you've learned lessons from the day, but your day is over. So you daven marv, let's say you go to our 9.30 marv at night, you've come home, you had dinner, you saw your children, you talked to your wife, you reflected on the day, and you go to marv to end your day with gratitude. But mincha, where is mincha? Smack in the middle of the day. You interrupt your day. You have business meetings and you have obligations and you have carpool and you have a million things. But you find the time in the middle of your day to have an anchor, to drop an anchor called davening. Just when you're making deals and cutting deals, you say, you know what? It's not me. The Amida. It's about a Kodesh Baruch I depend and rely on Him. You express this exercise in humility called davening in the middle of the day. To find time in the middle of the day, the most difficult time to find to daven, that's why Mincha is so beloved. That's why it is so appreciated by Hashem. Yitzchak introduces us to Mincha. Say the, uh, there's a parish, Ber Mayim Chaim, which says that Yitzchak introduces us to Mincha because Yitzchak was a Korban Ola. 
He was an Ola sacrifice when he was brought on the Mizbeach. He retained that status even though he was never actually offered. That's why Yitzchak can never leave Israel. Because he has the Kedushi, he has the sanctity, as if he is a living, walking sacrifice, a Korban Ola. A Korban Ola is brought with a Mincha. Mincha Sa'ola. So Yitzchak introduces Mincha, the Mincha Sa'ola, the Mincha of, of Yitzchak. Okay, they begin their life together, Yitzchak and Rivka. Avram remarries. This mysterious Keturah, Hagar, Nagar, all that goes on. And then we have the death of Avram and Yishmael's genealogy. Interesting, at the end of our parsha, we've also talked about this in the past, who shows up at Avram's funeral? That Avram expires, he dies at a good age, and our righteous are described as they're gathered to our people. What does it mean to be gathered to our people? But who buries Avram? Who shows up? Who's at the funeral? We expect Yitzchak to be there. The chosen child, the beloved, the prince. But who shows up? Maybe he's got some tattoos, some earrings. He came on a motorcycle. He came with his posse. Who comes? Yishmael. What is Yishmael doing? Rashi tells you, Yishmael did tshuva. He came back. He embraced Avram's values. But how? Last we heard from Yishmael, he's getting kicked out of the house. He's expelled. What brought him back? What kept him connected? How did that relationship last? We've talked about it in the past. We'll also leave for another time. So let's go back to the beginning of our parsha. Oh, there's so much to talk about. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning of our parsha. Vayu chayei Sarah. We are. What page is it in the art scroll? One oh six. Vayu chayei Sarah. Mea shana ve'asrim shana ve'sheva shanim shnei chayei Sarah. The lives translate properly. It was not the life of Sarah. What does it say in the art scroll? The lifetime. That's wrong. It says chayei Sarah. Mea shana ve'asrim shana ve'sheva shanim shnei chayei Sarah. It was the life of Sarah, 127 years, or 100 years, and 20 years, and 7 years, more accurately. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Rashi family says, Why does it say? It's very inefficient, the text. It should have said she was 127 years old. It doesn't say that. It says she was 100 years, and 20 years, and seven years. It's a very inefficient way of expressing it. Why? Rashi quotes Chazal, because when she was a hundred, she was as if she was, she had the innocence of a twenty-year-old. Halavai, a twenty-year-old should have innocence. She had the innocence of a twenty-year-old. When she was twenty, Hare'ena bas onshin af bas chus belochet, ubas chaf kebas zayin liyofi. And when she was twenty, she had the sweetness, the charisma, the beauty, the childlike Charisma of a seven-year-old. Shnei chayei Sarah, the years of the life of Sarah, says Rashi, kulon shavin latova. They were all equal. Rabbi Salavechik in his Chumash wonders, and we all know this. What, what do you mean? Biologically, chemically, it's impossible. In the realm of chemical processes, he writes, there's no way to retain biological youth in a middle-aged person, nor can the pattern of the middle age be preserved in old age. In the realm of the unfolding of the spirit, however, it's possible to see youth and ripe old age, even childhood and youth, as simultaneous experiences. In other words, the Rav is reinterpreting Rashi not to be describing a physiological phenomenon, but it's describing Sarah's spirit. It's her neshama. And he contrasts the Rav, interesting he knew, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan was a boy who refused to grow up and assume responsibility. In contrast, Sarah at 20 was mature and fully developed, both intellectually and emotionally. She was energetic, bold, and daring. Yet the adult in Sarah did not destroy the child. In the deep recesses of her personality, no matter how developed, no matter how capable and brilliant, no matter how attractive and ingenious, always resided an innocent child. The adult might have reached the highest peak of intellectual greatness or growth, yet that did not interfere with the secret presence of a child in Sarah. Notwithstanding the maturation of her natural wisdom, she retained within her the young girl she had been once upon a time. In times of need and crisis, the young, bold, courageous girl came to the fore and took over. Youth represents idealism. 
The young are committed unconditionally, arrogantly defying the world. Avram, like Sarah, was a youth all his life. He defied the society of which he was a part. He shattered the idols in an act of holy arrogance. He dared to be iconoclast in a pagan society that worshipped icons. The ability to experience childhood, youth, and old age concurrently is a sign of the covenantal community. In other words, part of our being the offspring of Avram and Sarah is to retain that capacity to be a child and an adult simultaneously. Be a child at heart. Have the innocence and purity. Don't be hardened and cynical and skeptical of the world like an adult. Stay a child, but at the same time have the maturity and a sense of responsibility of an adult. I say this to every bar about mitzvah child I meet with. Say, so, you know, you live in a country, you're 12 or 13, you can't vote, you can't drink, you can't own a gun, you can't drive, you can't, you're not an adult, you're a kid. We come from a religion that says at 12 or 13, you're an adult. You're capable of the maturity of responsibility, but yet, don't stop being a child. Shechter always points out that, you know, the author of the 19th Baruch of Shemuel Esrei, Shmuel HaKatan, his colleagues called him Shmuel HaKatan, why did they have this nickname, Shmuel HaKatan? He was, he was uh, short, HaKatan, he was small? No. Shmuel HaKatan meant that even though he was a mature old man, a mature adult, he was HaKatan. Only when you have the purity, the innocence, when you're unscathed by this world, when you have no ulterior motive or agenda, can you write Valamashinim. Only when you have the pure intent of a Shmuel HaKatan. So we have a, a bar mitzvah, a bas mitzvah, a person becomes an adult with all that being an adult means, but Sarah Imenu taught us that never lose the child in you. That sense of idealism, that sense of aspiration, the sense of purity and innocence. Children are so sweet. They're not hardened to life experience that makes them skeptical of the people around them, cynical of everything that happens. And we have to have a little bit more childlike innocence inside of us. And that idealism is what motivates us to grow. We said throughout the Yom Noraim period, which the Tzitzel Eliezer explains means, well, I'm not a Zakin. Why am I saying, God, don't, don't discard me in my old age? I'm not in my old age yet. Why is a 15 year old, why is a 22 year old saying, The Tzitzel Eliezer of Oldenburg explains it means, don't dismiss me as if I'm a zakein who's done growing, finished, arrived, finished product, has no growth yet. No, I still can grow, I still can change, don't give up on me. So youth represents idealism and potential and age represents life experience, wisdom, responsibility. Our job as offspring of Avram and Sarah is to combine the two like she did in her life these years of 127. But Thomas Sarah, Sarah dies. Where does she die? She dies in Kiryat Arba, which is synonymous with Hebron, which is in the land of Canaan. And Avram comes to uh, eulogize his wife and to cry for her. Why is it called Kiryat Arba? Rashi says, There were four giants that lived there. Another reason it's called Kiryat Arba is, We have four couples, four pairs who are buried there. So it's the Kirya of the Arba, of the four couples, of the four pairs who live there. The Rashbam is a different tradition. The Rashbam says, Why is it called Kiryat Arba? Shem Ha'ish Arba. Kedachsiv B'Yoshua. Kiryas Arba. Avi Ha'anak. Because the name of the man who owned the land was Arba. You don't have to get such drush. The four couples, the four pairs. It was the Kirya of the man whose name was Arba. The Rashbam disagrees with his Zayda, with his grandfather. The Ramban says, if you look at the Ramban, I'm sorry. Okay, the Rashbam. Let's stick with the Rashbam. So what happens? Sarah dies. Why does Sarah die now? Says the Sforno. Look at the Sforno, Pasuk Beis. Batama Sarah. Achar shenolda Rivka ruil amalei makom. Sarah shenolda zela Avram mesa Sarah. Only once Rivka is born and the light of Sarah is destined to be replaced, now Sarah's 
can leave this world. As the Gemara says in Yuma, Ain tzadik nifter olam elam tzadik A righteous person doesn't leave this world. There's no vacancy of righteousness. So the righteous person can only leave this world when there's a new righteous person who will fill, who will fill their spot. Who will fill their spot. The obvious question on this Pasuk, Sarah dies in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron and Eretz Canaan. There is a discussion, by the way, why is Sarah dying in Hebron? Where do Avram and Sarah live? In Beersheva. In fact, that's what it says. Vayavo Avram, the spot Sarah. Rashi says, Vayavo Avram. Where did Avram come from? Beersheva. If they live in Beersheva, why is Sarah in Hebron? And Avram has to make his way from Beersheva to Hebron. That's a question about which there is some discussion. So Rashi understands Vayavo Avram that Avram came literally. He had to come from Beersheva. Geographically, he had to journey to Hebron where his wife had passed away so he could arrange her burial. The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, again disagrees. Vayavo Avram, he didn't come from anywhere else. He was in Hebron. But a person has to dig deep and find the capacity to eulogize their wife. Vayavo, he came. That was his mission. That was his goal. That was his singular focus. Vayavo. Says the Rashbam, Vayavo doesn't mean geographic as Zayda described. Vayavo means that Avram came for the express purpose of giving a hesped for, for Sarah. A few interesting things about this Pasuk. Many interesting things. Many interesting things. What should bother you about this Pasuk? What should bother you? The order. What comes first? L'spod l'sarav v'liv kosa. Beloved member of your family dies. Parent, grandparent, sibling, God forbid, a child. What happens first? First you write the eulogy... And then you cry? First you cry. Your emotional reaction, recoil with a sense of grief, you cry. And then you put yourself together in order to be able to write a hespid. Why does it describe? Here, Avram first gives a hespid, and only then afterwards does he allow himself to cry. Why is the order different? What? So? Oh, so the chaf is small, so maybe uh, there's a connection. Rashi also notes the spot lasar v'liv kosa nismachamisa sar laakedas yitzchak fishal yidei b'suras haakedas and his dami in benalish chita v'kimat shelo nishchad parchen nishmasa mimenu mesa. As I said before, she heard about yitzchak. She didn't get the punchline, and she died out of out of fear. But why the the different order? Rabbi Salavechik has a comment here. Rabbi Soloveitchik says it's for the following reason. Avram cried. The beloved Sarah was snatched away from him. Her oil, her tent, will be forever empty and forsaken. The blow to Avram as an individual was almost unbearable. It's not Hespid, which describes Avram's state of mind most precisely, but rather Bechi. It's feeling the desolation. But Sarah was not only Avram's mate, his comrade as well. Sarah was his collaborator and co-participant in all the great plans, hopes, and visions. Together they discovered God. Together they discovered a new morality. Together they joined the covenant. In a word, Sarah and Avram started the Mesorah. Not only Avram taught the people, but Sarah as well. It says that Avram was Megayer es Anashim, and Sarah Megayer es Anashim, the gracious rabbi. Now the mother is dead, and the Mesorah has a father, but no mother. The Mesorah is incomplete. Avram mourned Sarah in this respect as a colleague, teacher, co-founder of the Mesorah. The grief experienced here is classified under Hespid, not the hysterical Bechi. It portrays a different sort of mourning. Torah is telling us that Avram first mourned the death of the mother of the Mesorah and then the death of a lovely wife, without whom his life will be desolate, bleak, and dreary. So in other words, Avram experiences the loss of Sarah in two ways. It's his life partner, his soulmate, the love of his life, his confidant, the mother of his child. But she's also his partner in what he brought to the world and the mother of the Mesorah, of the covenantal community. Hespid, the eulogy, the admiration for her, 
corresponds not with the private role she played for him in their tent, but the public role she was in transforming the world. Bechi, the crying, is about the intimacy, the privacy, her role as his wife in their tent. When it came time to say goodbye and to mark her significance, which did he put first? The private role she played for him in the tent or the public role she was in transforming the world? It's first, the spod Sarah. First, he recognized her broader, greater role in the world. And only then, Bechi, the personal loss that he, that he experienced. It's very interesting, the Rav points out here. Avram's historical mission could not have been implemented without Sarah's participation. Both appeared together in Jewish history. Upon Sarah's death, Avram lost his mission. Just as Sarah's tent was passed to Rivka, the house of Avram was given to Yitzchak. Avram mourned over Sarah, but also over the fact that he had to withdraw from the Pesach Ohel, the front of the tent, into the shadows. We don't hear from Avram again. Avram reaches a peak with Sarah, and when Sarah dies, that's the only interaction with Avram now is his interest in setting Yitzchak up to inherit the legacy. But Avram, as a mover and shaker, Avram is a catalyst of world change. Avram is a father of nations. That's in the past. Without his life partner, he is incomplete. He's not the same person he once was, and that's why we don't see Avram's impact anymore in a broader, in a broader sense. Ain isha mesa ela Chazal say, that the loss of a spouse impacts the surviving spouse more than does anyone else. The children can cry, that person's parent can cry, but the spouse, ain isha mesa ela when a person, when a woman passes away, her husband is broken, he's incomplete, he's a shell of who he once was, and that was in the case of Avram. And despite that, he puts first lispod l'sara and only then Kosa, first identifies, marks, memorializes her broader role of the Jewish people, and only afterwards her personal role. You know, we give Avram a lot of credit. We talk about Avram Avinu all the time. And Sarah, we depict as if she's playing a minor role on the stage of world history. But Sarah was a major, major force. Sarah was an incredible influence. And you see it from Avram's being incomplete without her. But for example, Gemara in Megillah Yadal tells us there were seven prophetesses in our history. Sarah was not only the first she was the greatest among all of them. The Medrash tells us that all the other prophetesses spoke to God through a malach, an intermediary. Sarah, exclusively among them, spoke directly with Hashem. The Zohar points out that Sarah is the only woman in Tanakh whose age is given when it talks about her death. Why? Some of them, of explain, because Sarah lived every day to its fullest. So when noting her death, it mentions her age to describe that every moment of every day of her life was filled with meaning. Sarah is described as one of the four most beautiful women in all of Jewish history. Sarah, Rachav, Avigail, and Esther. It says, Anefesh that Sarah was my Megayeres as Hanashim, that while Avram gave the Kirov classes to the men, Sarah was transforming the world with the women's trips to Israel and the women's outreach classes and her, her impact. It says, The Medrash says, All the years she was radiant and joyful and happy. Now, if you read the text, it doesn't sound like she should be. She longed for a son. She was willing to allow her husband to have a different wife. Finally, she has that son, and he's getting bad influence from her stepson. Sarah goes to Egypt, and twice she has to pretend she's her husband's sister. It doesn't sound like she had the easiest life, but the Medrash testifies that she was joyful and happy and had incredible sense of Amuna. She's the first of the Avosari Mos to be buried in Maras Machpelah, together with Adam and Chava. She has tremendous, tremendous virtue. And Avram comes, l'spod l'sarah v'liv kosa. And the Medrash Tanchuma tells us, what was the hespid that Avram gave? You're all familiar with it. The Medrash Tanchuma says, Eishas Chayel. Eishas Chayel is the hespid. Avram got up and he read Eishas Chayel. It wasn't Shlomo HaMelech who composed it. It was Avram Avinu in tribute to his wife Sarah. You know, Ben Zion Schenker, Sechronel of Racha, was nifter this week. He's a great uh, Jewish musician, and he composed the Eishes Chayel that we all sing. Eishes Chayel Miimtza. That's his. Which left me wondering, 
What did anyone sing before? What, was, is there another tune? I don't even know of another tune for Eishas Chayel. I never heard of any other tunes. I guess people just said Eishas Chayel before Ben Zion Shanker was born. I don't know, but he left us that great legacy. The universal tune of Eishas Chayel, sung at every Jewish Shabbos table, it doesn't matter what yarmulke you wear, what level of frumkite, everyone uses the same tune, universally. It was Rabbi Sion Schenker. But that Eishas Chayel that we sing was Avram's Hespid for his wife. And of all her qualities, her brilliance, her faith, her courage, her tenacity, what best captures Sarah's life in this Hespid? So the Medrash tells us, Darsha Tzemer Ufishtim. She sorts out wool from, sorts out wool from linen? Are you kidding? It's a woman who transformed the world. Brilliant, insightful, impactful. She revolutionized the world. She brought light into the world. She was an incredible giver. The fact that she could sort wool and linen? Are you kidding? She sorted the laundry. Oh, what a husband. Geshmaka woman. Unbelievable. That's it. Darshat Semer Ufishtim with all the things Avram could say. That's what he said. Darshat Semer Ufishtim. So the Medrash elaborates that Darshat Semer Ufishtim, separating wool and linen, is a metaphor of separating Yitzchak from Yishmael. See, Sarah and Avram had been locked in a conflict. Avram was Kulo Chesed. Kulo Chesed. He could never expel somebody. Avram could never exile someone. To kick Yishmael out of that, give him one, one more chance. Chesed, one more chance. Give him one more chance. We have to work harder. We have to be more flexible. Give him one more chance. Sarah, in her commitment to protecting her Yitzchak, was more rigid. I wish the best for Yishmael. I wanted to succeed. But I can't afford to expose Yitzchak to Yishmael. I will not allow Yitzchak to go down with him. I will not allow Yitzchak to give him to peer pressure and to be introduced to alcohol and to drugs and to language and to images. So I wish the best for Yishmael. And I too love Yishmael, says Sarah to Avram. But they need to be separated. And so the Medrash is testifying in this great conflict and debate. Who was right? Sarah, Darshat Semer Ufishtim. Sarah knew how to separate the wool from the linen when it was necessary to create some filters and barriers to protect the wholesomeness, that she was right. The Shemana Tov, Rav Weinberger says, when it describes Vayavo Avram Lispod the Sarah, Rashi said Vayavo, he came from Beersheva. And the Rashbam said Vayavo, it means he prepared himself, he was ready. Says the Medrash, Vayavo Avram Lispod the Sarah, where did he come from? He came from the funeral of Terach. Funeral of Terach happened a long time ago. What do you mean, Vayavo? He came from the funeral of Terach, his father, to the funeral of his wife, Sarah. Chronologically, it doesn't work out. Says the Shem and Atov. What it means is, from the funeral of Terach, Sarah had killed the influence of Terach. And that gave Yitzchak the Amuna to go through the Akedah. Vayavo, Avram, came from Terach to mourn for Sarah means he realized he had to have a proper barrier. And there's a very important lesson for all of us in parenting, how we find the balance between the chesed, when, when is the appropriate time for chesed, and when is the appropriate time like Sarah, Darshat Semer of Fishtim, to find that sense of separation. But Sarah, our matriarch, was incredibly great in her own right. She was an influential Jewish woman. Anyone who studies Tanakh and thinks that Judaism doesn't have a role or place for women in leadership, in transformation, is not, is not paying attention. All of our imahos, chana, aviga, go down, go down the list. You have dvora. You have, it's incredible. And Sarah really set the stage, set the standard, and plays that role here. And she's, uh, and she's mourned for. The um, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz has a different insight. I know we normally stick with the Rishonim, but I have such good stuff, I can't help but share it with you. So Rav Chaim Shmulevitz says the following. It's quoted by Rav Yankel Galinsky. And it's Sefer Vigarita. So it says, Avram, Vayavo Avram, the spod, the Sarah. Avram Kim comes to give a hespit for his Sarah, and then he cries. And what's the hespit he gives? So one pshat is the Eshes Chayel. But Rav Chaim Shmulevitz is just sticking with Rashi. What's the, what's the hespit he gives? So he could have talked about the fact that she's the greatest of all the prophetesses. He could have talked about the fact that she had a Ruach HaKodesh, she had divine inspiration. He could have talked about her teaching skills. He could have talked about her hospitality, how she excelled at Hachnasas Orchim. He could have talked about all these things. But that's not it. What does he say? Shayukosh Nosea Shavim Latova. That all of her years were equal. 
She didn't wax and wane. She didn't have ups and downs. She didn't have different periods of her life. But she was consistent. When Avram has to give a hespid, what is it? The spotless Sarav Olivko saw what's his hespid. Rashi said, Kulon Shavon Latova. His hespid is, all her years were equal. That's the hespid. So Rav Chaim Shemulevit says, yeah, you see that surpassing even all the other accolades, hospitality, brilliance, teacher, wisdom, transformational leader, but superseding or surpassing all of them is the ability to be consistent. What he calls Ritzifus, to not have a break or a lull. You know, people retire, people are exhausted, people feel at times uninspired or unmotivated, and we have cycles in our life. We have cycles of inspiration and of a lack of inspiration. Sarah never had cycles. She was consistent all the way through, and of all the praises and accolades that could be offered, you see that that is the greatest. And Rechaim Shmulevitz adds on, this is the story of the Gemara in Ksubas and Adarim, of the daughter of Kalba Savua, the great Rachel, who was the wife of Rabbi Akiva. That Rabbi Akiva went to go learn, and what happens? He comes back after the agreed time to learn, the 12 years, and he sees Rachel, and she turns him around and says, go back to learn more. Turns him around, go back to learn more. He can't spend one hour at home, one day at home, one week, one month. She understands the value of Ritzifus, of consistency. That if it were, if it were 12 years with a break with 12 years, it'd be 12 years and 12 years. But only by turning right around was it 24 years as a unit. The value of consistency without taking a break. We all know what it's like. If you ever exercise or work out, you know that if you take even a short break, when you go back and start it again, oh, do you pay again? You ache, you can't stand up, you can't move, you can't... If you just take a short break, if you lose the consistency, the retzifos, it sets you so far back, not quite like starting again, but almost all the way there. Okay, let's keep going now. All right, so much more good stuff. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So what's next? Avram now has to find her a burial place. He is prepared to give a eulogy. He cries. We talked about it at length. What happens? Avram gets up and he speaks to the people of Ches. I am a stranger and a resident together with you. He says, I am a resident. I'm a stranger and a resident together with you. Give me a burial property so that I can bury my dead from before me. Allow me to bury my beloved wife. Ger v'toshev anuchi imachem, Rashi says, Ger me'eretz acheres v'nitziyashavti imachem. I'm an immigrant. I come from elsewhere. And I came to dwell here, legally. Umedrash agada, im tirtsu arini ger v'im lav eya toshev v'etlena minadin. Shamal yakosh borchu zarecha atenes haretzazos. Rashi quotes a great medrash. Ger, I'm an immigrant. Sell me the land. I will tell you, it's, it's yours. It's yours, and I need to buy it, so sell it to me. And if you're unwilling to sell it to me, then know that Toshav, that the truth is, it's really my land. God promised it to me. God gave it to me. So even though I've positioned myself to you like I'm a stranger and I've asked you to sell it to me, but the truth is, it's my land. I'm a Toshav. So sell it to me, I'm happy to pay. And if you refuse, know that really it's my land. Ger the Toshav. The Svarno says... I'm an immigrant, so I don't, have a, I don't have an ancestral plot to bury my loved one. I need to buy a family plot. And I want you to know, you want to know evidence that I plan on being here a long time? True, I'm an immigrant, I'm a ger. So I don't have a natural place to bury, and I want to buy land. But you're worried, why should you sell me land? Here today, gone tomorrow, Toshav Anochi because I want to stay. I want to be a resident, a minute long term. So the Svorno says, that's the contrast, Ger Toshav. Ger means I need to buy a piece of land. Ah, you're afraid to sell it to me because I'm going to be out of here? Toshav. I plan on staying here for the long haul. You have nothing to fear, sell me the land. The Rav the Rav describes that this is essentially the tension that the Jew of Diaspora lives with. Ger v'toshev anochi imachem. We are on the one hand a ger, 
We are separate, different, and apart from the world in which we live. We have different values, we have different priorities, we have a different lifestyle. And at the same time, we are a Toshav. We are a part of, even while we are apart from. We are integrated, we contribute to society, we participate in society, we benefit from society. This is essentially the tension of the modern Orthodox Jew. Ger v'toshav anochi machem. I am a ger. It's not that I assimilate into you as if I have no other values or lifestyle. I'm a stranger. You and I have nothing in common. But v'toshav, we have so much in common. And that balance, that tension about where do I integrate and where do I stay away. When am I part of and when, when am I apart from? That's the balance that we have from Avram Avinu of Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. Continuing. Now we get to the, to the uh, negotiation. The Kliyakar, just to, to go back a moment. I forgot to mention. The Kliyakar also addresses why is the Hesped coming before the Bechi? Why is the eulogy before the wailing, the crying? It should be the opposite order. Milas lesari hechnes ben advekim. I'm in the Kliyakar now. So he asks our question. Nearly, normally, ha'eval holechum is might. So the Kliyakar's answer is, normally the only thing that heals the wounds of loss is time. Time. As much as we wish we could accelerate time to comfort mourners faster, we can't. When a person experiences loss, grief, the only thing that heals is time. Of course, there's support groups and bereavement groups and there are things we can do. But essentially, the only thing is time. So normally what happens, with the passage of time, one transitions from acute grief to a less grief, and then they heal and they're able to go on with their life. So therefore, it's first becha, you cry, and then it's hespid. Now you put yourself together and you can give the hespid. And then you go on to shiva and shloshim and yuzbei chodesh. And then you just observe a yurtzite once a year. You say yisker. Not that you've forgotten altogether about the person, but it's not part of your daily consciousness the way it is when it's acute. That's normal. Says the Kliyakar, Sarah, what Sarah meant in Avram's life, he was inconsolable. It's not that he cried, then he healed from that so he could give the hespid, then he healed from that so he could move on. He gave the hespid, but he just didn't stop crying. Lispod the Sarah v'liv kosa means every day that went on, it didn't get better, it got worse because he felt her loss even more and more and more and more. And that's why it goes against the natural order because of who she was. That's the Kliyakar's explanation. Continuing. Sure. You get a kever, yeah. Yeah, your city, your town, you get a grave in the city that you live. Right. But he was a ger, so he didn't have it. So the people of Ches answer him and they say, Oh, Avram, your reputation precedes you. You're a Nesiyah Lokim. We know who you are. We've heard about you. You're a chash of a guy. Choose from the best land. Whatever you want. Nobody will oppose a protest. Nobody will block you from burying your beloved, your beloved Sarah. Avram is very appreciative. He nods and bows in appreciation. And he says, If you are in fact willing to be so cooperative, if you're willing to assist me in, uh, in securing a place to bury my wife, so please, Piguli Be'efron. What's Piguli? Introduce me. Set me up to meet Ephron. Rashi says, Piguli is Lashon Bakasha. Avram is asking, please, I need your help. I need to meet Ephron. The uh, Sforno says, Piguli. Sheyimkor afa pisheeno nos lish nechbad limkor meachuzoso. The Svarno says, what's Piguli? Why is, Ra- why is Avram asking? Avram's willing to pay a hefty fee. So why is he, as if it's such a great favor, 
The answer is the person owns real estate and somebody wants to turn part of it into a burial plot, that's a big favor. Ephron is a distinguished man, and that's why this Forno says, Avram is saying, Upiguli, it's a bakasha, it's a, I know that I need to ask Ephron to do something unusual, sort of a compromise for him. Please introduce me, please uh, advocate for me, because I want to buy Mara Samachpela, which is on the edge of his field. Because of Malay, I'm willing to pay full price. I'm willing to pay a great fee. I want to purchase this land. Why does he say it's on the edge of his field? Sforno says, I'm not looking to buy something smack in the middle of his field. I'm not looking to put a burial plot in a way which will ruin his real estate holding, his asset. I want to put it on the edge of the field. I'll buy the edge of his field. It won't impact the rest of the way that he uses his field, and I'm willing to pay, says the Sforno, I'm not looking for you to lose money. I'm just looking to pay my way so that I can give honor to my wife. Why is it called Ma'aras HaMachpelah? Rashi says, It's two stories. Machpelah, it's double, it's two stories. That's why it's called Mara Samachpelah. Dover Acher, Shekfula Bezugos. There are numerous pairs. Kfulos, Kefel, is a pair. Since there are four pairs buried there, it's Mara, it's the cave of Machpelah, of the pairs, of the four pairs who are buried there. So Rashi gives those two reasons. The Ibn Ezra gives a third reason. Why is it called Mara Samachpelah? Ma'ara Besoch Ma'ara. It's a cave inside a cave. The Ramban comes along, he quotes Rashi, and he says, Eino nachon, hakasav amar, stay afron, asher b'machpelah, hu shem ha-makom, asher bo-asada. Ein sorach levakesh tam l'shem makomos. Says the Ramban to Rashi, what are you so busy trying to come up with drushes, figuring out why it's called machpelah? It's the name of the place. When a place has a name, it doesn't have to have a reason. Boca Raton, the mouth of the rat. Why? Why is it called the mouth of the rat? Epis, because... Stop darshaning. Somebody needed to give a name. They gave a name. So it's called, says the Ramban, it's called Machpelah. That was the name of the place. Machpelah. It's the cave of Machpelah. So a big Machlokas. Why is exactly called Maras HaMachpelah? So Avram identifies, this is what I want. It's the edge of the field. I'm willing to pay. The Ephraim Yosheh B'Soch B'Necheis. Ephraim sitting there. Vayan Ephraim Achitiyas Avram B'Aznai B'Necheis. L'chol boy Shari Role Mor. And Ephraim says... And the text goes out of its way to describe that Ephron says it loudly so everyone can hear. I won't hear of it. The field is yours. Avram, Avram, you're such a distinguished person. Such a prominent person. The cave is yours. In front of everyone, I am magnanimously, gener- generously giving it to you. It's yours Go bury your wife. Avram acknowledges the crowd. And then he turns to Ephron. And he says that they can all hear. It's a nice gesture. I want to pay. I'm going to pay. Why does he insist on paying? Rashi tells us. Because he anticipates that in the future people will come and challenge the Jews don't own Hebron. So what are the three places that we bought because we knew they would come and challenge us? What are they? Harabayit, Chevron, and Kever Yosef in Shechem. So they'll come and say, they still say it anyway, right? We can show them, you know, Perech of Gimel, Pasuk Yedalad. They still come and tell us anyway. So Avram says, so it's a fantastic drama unfolding here. Ephron gathers everyone because he wants them to hear when he tells Avram... It's yours. I can't take a penny. Avram bows to the crowd. Nice of him. Then also says loudly so they can hear, I won't hear of it. I want to pay you everything. I want to pay you everything. He says, okay. What's uh, $400 million between us? A minute ago, Ephron was willing to give it away for nothing. And now he's charging an exorbitant fee. Avram el Ephron, Avram Avram here is Ephron, and he takes the money that he had spoken, 
and he pays Ephron. What is Vayishma Avram? He hears. Shouldn't it say Vayishma Avram es Ephron? Why does it say Vayishma el Ephron? Comes the Rashpam and says, Vayishma Avram, dai lechakima beremiza. What did Avram hear? Not the Arba Meo Shekel Kesef. Vayishma Avram means Avram heard between the lines. Avram saw who this Ephron was. Avram saw the duplicitousness and the hypocrisy. He saw how fake and what a fraud that Ephron tried to appear magnanimous. He wanted to impress the Bnei Ches, so he made sure they all hear when he offered it for nothing. And then when it came time, he didn't negotiate a fair price. He extorted Avram because it's what the funeral industry in Florida would call at-need. This was not a pre-need negotiation. This was an at-need negotiation. So Ephron, who a moment ago said, Money, how can I take a penny from you? You, oh, you insist on paying? Okay, it's $400 million. A minute ago, he wanted to give it for free. Now he's extorting Avram. Vayishma el Ephron. It's not that he heard S. Ephron. The words Ephron was saying, he heard between the lines, he read Ephron for who he really was. And Chazal derived from here, Sone matanos yechia, that one should always turn down gifts. Don't take freebies, because you know nothing is free. Strings attached. There's always a condition. So Avram doesn't want this freebie, and this is a precedent for us. Don't take freebies. There's a lot more to talk about, but we only have two minutes left, so I want to end with this. Rabbeinu Yonah says, Rabbeinu Yonah says, you know, we have a tradition, the missionary Pirkei tells us, that Avram endured ten tests. No less than ten tests. How do you enumerate them? It's a great machlokis among the commentaries. Fun exercise to figure out which are the ten tests in what order. So it's normally thought that the tenth test happened when? The end of last week's Parsha. The end of last week's Parsha, the, the Akedah. That was the, the climax, the culmination of all tests, is the Akedah. Comes along Rabbeinu Yonah and he says, no. When was the tenth test? The beginning of our Parsha. What's the tenth test at the beginning of our Parsha? So the Salon of Rebbe says, you know what the tenth test was? When Avram fam- came back from the Akedah, he's got a little... You know, a little jump, a little skip in his walk. He's floating on air. He surpassed this impossible test. He's still arm in arm with his Yitzchak who survived. He's on top of the world. And then he comes home and he finds that what? Sarah had died. What might he have thought at that moment? You know what? I regret doing the Akedah. I regret listening to God. I should have said to God, no way. I'm not doing it. And then my Sarah would still be here. He looked back on something he had done that was right that didn't have the best result, he could have regretted it. And he didn't. That was the tenth test. And says the Islam Rebbe, that's what we say in Marav every night, the Haser Satan Milfanenu Umeacharenu. The Satan Milfanenu, the evil urge that's in front of us, is the temptation, the desire, the opportunity. What's the Satan Milfanenu behind us? If it's behind us, we've already passed it. What's Meacharenu? It means, even when you look back on something good or right that you did, that didn't have the result that you hoped for or anticipated, if you don't regret doing the right thing, that's the tenth test, says the Slanama Rebbe. But Rabbeinu Yonah, others suggest that the tenth test was that Avram had to pay for something he already owned. He had been promised by God Himself, this is your land. For a Jew to pay for something they already own? It's taka, a great, a great test. Another suggestion is that Avram could have been overwhelmed by the loss of his wife, by the grief, and yet he got himself together in order to pass the test. But I want to tell you another pshat they say in Rabbeinu Yonah. This is Rav Dessler. Rav Dessler says, you know what Avram's tenth test was? The culmination of all tests is to always be a mensch. When Ephron is playing around with Avram, here's a man who's grief-stricken he just came back from almost killing his son to discover that his wife, his life partner, his other half, has gone. And he just wants to buy a field. And he's willing to pay what it costs. And Ephron is giving him the runaround. And there's a whole fake thing going on. And what might Avram have done? He might have lost it. He could scream at Ephron. He could yell at Ephron. He could totally lose his cool 
Ephron is a greedy, corrupt, boorish negotiator. He positions himself like he's going to do the greatest favor, and then he doesn't hesitate to extort Avram for an exorbitant sum of 400 silver shekel. The generosity was a sham. It was disingenuous. And Avram could have lashed back out at him. And they could have had a heated exchange and a heated negotiation. But Avram didn't. At that, in that moment, Avram didn't lose his cool. He didn't yell and scream. It says Rav Dessler, he remained a mensch. And being a mensch under difficult circumstances, that is the culmination of all the tests. That's Avram's tenth test. It's a test that we face on a regular basis. That even when someone tests our patience... That's the language we use. You tested my patience. You tested my kindness. Even in those moments to never lose one's cool, Avram stayed a mensch even when his patience was tested. And that is the test for all of us as well. Rabbi Moskowitz's phenomenal class will take place now. Reminder, Friday morning is our monthly sunrise minion on the beach. It's going to be a beautiful sunrise and a magnificent crisp morning Friday morning. Rabbi, you know what time it starts? I don't know, check with the shul office or see the email. I don't remember what time it starts. Hope to see everybody there.